Hi, you guys. Welcome back to my channel. If I'm honest, this is a video I never thought I'd have to make. Um, but the internet has been so crazy today, I feel like I have to say something. And I'm going to try to get through it without crying. Um, so, as you guys know, for many months, I have been working on this, the Slut Palette. It's an amazing palette. Um, it's everything sluts need and want. Um, and I thought that things were going to be great. And then today I found out that my best friend, my, my former best friend, is releasing a palette called the Whore Palette. <sighs> Just let that sit in. Um, I know people say sluts and whores are different. Um, I'm not a college professor, so I don't know. But personally, this feels like a very deep personal attack and I can't let somebody sabotage my life like that. And I know that this is so disappointing for all of you sluts out there um, because you deserve palettes too and that's what I was hoping to do with this project. Um, but because of what happened, um, I'm sorry, I thought this wouldn't... <sighs> um, I've decided to stop production on the slut palette. And I hope you guys can understand. Um, and I hope that we can all move on from this together. Um, there's so many sluts out there who are amazing. So I just really ask that you guys turn to each other in this time. Um, I can't do this. Living glam, living rough, living with Jonathan and Katie. Welcome to Living with Slut and Whore. <laughs> Who's slut and who's whore? We'll find out on season two. <laughs> I feel like I'm slut because I'm stupid and wouldn't get money. So I'm just slutty and you're smart and would at least charge. That's true. But then like in season two of our show, we'd get our DNA tested and I'd be like, I'm 100% whore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I didn't know. Um, like, guess who's the slut now? <laughs> um, welcome to our latest episode. We are having fun here at the Coven headquarters. So today is an amazing episode. We have probably our most famous guest on. Absolutely. Full famous, shade to powerful. every single guest we've yes. had on past. <laughs> you unfamous whores. Get a uh, Wikipedia, why don't you? <laughs> we have Guy Branham on the podcast, which you will be able to listen to shortly. And there's many reasons we had Guy Branham on. Um, he is a mentor to all the little gay boys and all the women out there in comedy because he truly has tasked himself. He has told me that that is how he sees himself in many ways, which is gracious. But we just need to t ask him why we're failing so much at our yeah, careers. Yeah. What's going on with <laughs> we that? We need to know what's the deal yeah. with our failure. No, he's great. He's a career TV writer. He's done so much and he's so kind and generous. Um, Wonderful stand-up. Has album has numerous, numerous late nights, a half hour. Like he's done a lot of um, stuff. He has a book. Yeah. You know, he's writing, he's, he's doing the, this already came out in the trades. Um, he's rewriting Babette's feast for the American version. And then he just did the rewrite of two weddings and a funeral. Like he's truly killing it right now. Yeah. And I've always liked him. And then he complimented my apartment and I love him now. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what he said about your apartment, which you will hear in the episode, but I didn't get to say because it was too interesting in conversation. You can't possibly include everything. He said that 
this um, this color palette was great because so many women are too afraid to go to like these bold colors, mm -hmm. which I so agree with Katie because if I have to see another fucking room that's all neutrals with pops of color, I'm gonna kill myself. Like I just want color. I don't need like all gray that's and then like a me. golden thing. I'm literally allergic to neutral bedding. Ugh, I hate. Gross. I can take an all white room if it's like bohemian with plants and stuff. I like clean, but um, I hate that. If you are a modern minimalist stop even listening to this podcast now if you're an industrial fan kill yourself <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna be constructive here you should kill yourself you should kill my boyfriend's favorite catchphrase <laughs> truly um it it's an offensive thing to me it's like we all like living we're not living in prison on purpose yes um and i don't also, care if you're a little dorian gray 50 shades of gray millionaire i like how in all <laughs> movies it's always like oh he's a bachelor that's why everything's cement right um which it's like most bachelors it's like a dingy apartment with a sock on the floor and a pizza box and then if they're wealthy it's just like a cement block and then i guess chains because they're gonna like right. whip your little naughty self yes also anyone out there don't kill yourself um Please unless don't. you are like us in which we have 12 lives or are immortal then by all then means go kill for yourself it. and reincarnate <laughs> and while you're reincarnating please reincarnate as a maximalista absolutely. because i am not <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, you guys are going to love this episode. If you are aspiring, uh, if you're an aspiring person in Hollywood, or if you're not, it's like a really great behind the scenes look at how shows get made. Yeah, this is, we're talking about TV writing in particular, but we're also talking about comedy, stand up, the industry, getting repped, being gay, being a woman, um, anything that is not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anything that's not mainstream in comedy. And so many people are out in LA or in New York or in other entertainment uh, places trying to make it happen and it sometimes feels like you can't make anything happen and that no one wants you and everything is a no regardless of how hard you're working regardless of your talent and it feels like sometimes friends around you are just like blossoming and you can't make it work yeah so we talked to guy branham about that and um about how to be less of a scrub yeah that's so true yes <laughs> so enjoy guys bye you guys may have noticed that I'm unusually large for a homosexual. I am not certain why this is the case. My current working theory is that once my parents realized I was going to be gay, they figured they might as well raise the largest one in the county. If they're not getting grandchildren out of the deal, at least they could get a blue ribbon. And we're back, sluts. Um, we're here with our guest. Um, he is, this is a very special day. Um, very special. One of my favorite people. Um, legendary comic. Our favorite people. I want to claim ownership. Yes. <laughs> legendary comic. He, you know, he has his own album called Effable. He's been on Conan. He's also a prolific comedy writer. He's written for Chelsea Lately, Billy on the Street, the other two, The Mindy Project, and he has two movies coming down the bend. He is amazing, and we have him in... The apartment. I was gonna say in studio, but we don't live, we don't do this in the studio anymore. No, we do it in a yeah. beautifully, impeccably designed apartment. Oh, yes, which we just talked about in length. Please welcome Guy Branham. Yay! It's a very nice apartment. Thank it you is. so much. That means a lot. That yes. really means a lot because I, I respect your taste. Thank you. I mean, 
Uh, I, I don't know that I have the, the best of taste in visual things, um, but I do definitely like this apartment. And I, I was just noticing um, the, there are five throw pillows on the couch here, the, the center of which is the grandmaiest yes. uh, in something that is very like bright and exciting. And I just thought it caught the eye very beautifully. I love, I love a pop. You yeah, know? It, Those are also um, thrift store. Most things are secondhand, which I means a lot to me so that I can tell people I'm like a non-consumer and don't contribute to the destruction of this world. But what do you do? And having a um, like a grandma throw pillow is like a good little like Easter egg to usher in your cronehood. Yeah, it is, it is the secret. It's the only secret thing is how you actually know how old I actually am. Right. Um, I would like to say today I was like cleaning out um, the room that is my office and I was having to confront the number of vintage tea sets I have purchased since turning 40 years old. And I'm just, you know, there, there's something about you can get mad at yourself for being that gay guy or you can just say like, I'm a middle-aged gay man. I do not live in a time where gay men in their 40s have all been killed by a plague. I need to be excited about yes. the vintage teapots and that buy one for everyone entered that my has. life. Truly. <laughs> Truly, that's the way to celebrate it. And if you ever retire, you should get them appraised and sell the most valuable or the second most valuable so you can have that like nice going out thing like in your 70s or 80s when you choose to yes. retire. And then you can you can like power play and like my grandma's at a stage where she keeps, when you go to her house, she gives you like um little like file folder labels yeah. and she goes, put a sticker on anything you want when I'm gone. Oh, that's adorable. Which is very cute. But I also feel like it's a little bit like, did you earn this sticker today? <laughs> Find out. Guy, what if you had to choose a place to retire and the options are PV, okay. seat, seat Jess, or Seat Guess. I don't yes. know how the, Wait, the what Catalan... Is P- what is PV? Uh, Puerto Vallarta. Oh, okay. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Seat Jess or Seat Is that gay slang? I don't know. Yeah, PV. Okay. Yeah, it's like... Yeah. Uh, okay, so PV, Seat Jess, Spain. Uh-huh. Um, Palm Springs uh-huh. or Provincetown? What would you pick? I have never done any of the East Coast uh, gay resort situations. Mm-hmm. I know nothing of Provincetown mm-hmm. or Fire Island. I would, I mean, it's a boring choice, but I would 100% go with Palm Springs um, just because I like California, I like dryness, and I enjoy dates. Yes. Um, uh, like, the Mediterranean is delightful. Um, I've never been to Sitges, but I have been to Nice. Um like uh, I, I, the Mediterranean is very calm. It also means that the beaches can be kind of rocky. Um, and Puerto Vallarta, again, I have never been to. It seems adorable. Guess uh, I've only gone to Mexico in situations where straight women were taking me. Thus, I went to Cabo. Um, but can we the, assume that was a Chelsea yes. handler um, situation? And I was supposed to go to Puerto Vallarta uh, with my most recent gentleman, but then we ungentlemaned, um, and so. PVing has never happened. I can't wait to go. I've still not been either, yes. but I I cannot wait. I, I mean, own property there, so I don't know. <laughs> well, right now there's a big festival going on in in Puerto Vallarta called Beef Dip, uh-huh. and it's all like bears, cubs, muscle guys, uh, femme guy. It's like very inclusive, and it's all like you know, it's like a big like gay takeover and it's always very gay there, but yes. I really want to go during beef dip. The most fun That's thing fun. Uh, about going anywhere else in like the West coast of Mexico is you can pull up grinder and immediately identify how far away Puerto Vallarta is because <laughs> right. like all of you get like two listings close to you and then a thousand guys, 437 miles away. Yeah. I didn't know that um, PV is the, is that's like the gay city of, I, I ju- of Mexico, yeah. yeah, it's probably well, oh, there's, I didn't know that. there's the weird way where you guys don't think about it because you don't have to. I know, um, but like 
gay vacation destinations, there are only so many. Sure, like, sure. If we go to the Caribbean, it's San Juan or a cruise, or you're not going to have any fun, yeah. you know? Um, Especially the Caribbean. It's yeah. Really yeah. Like, yeah. But it's it's just, uh, it's a little hard, but it's almost, it's kind of like being a stand-up and just being like, well, I have to live in LA. Yeah. Just that thing of like, yeah. I'm gay. I, I, you know, if I want to go like to the Mediterranean, I'm going to Sichas or Mexico or, uh, or uh, Mykonos. Like if I'm going to Mexico, it's Puerto Vallarta. Right. Yeah. But you That's guys so got true. Palm Springs. So congrats yes. to that. That you, was a good, you guys bought early there and uh, you knew. You know what? You know where I just went that is actually coming up in terms of its gayness <laughs> is Lisbon. Oh. Lisbon is really oh. killing it. What the fuck is going on with Portugal and just like tourism generally, but also gay guys? Like, okay, well, first of all, I look, I look Portuguese. <laughs> Everyone was very disappointed and shocked that I didn't speak Portuguese. Yes. Um, but the Portuguese English. You is like, do speak Portuguese. You just go Row, at the yeah. end yeah. of all of your Spanish. Oh, yeah, you exactly. Meow. You meow. Um, their English, by the way, is impeccable, like better English than the French than the Spanish, like oh, impeccable. There's nothing creepier than the Netherlands. Like I went and did a, oh, yes. a stand up show in the Netherlands and the guy who was running it, it was an English language stand up show. And I was like, uh, where are you from? How long have you lived here? And he was like, I'm from the Netherlands. Yes. I just speak English this well. Yeah. But with the Netherlands, at least that's a richer country. Yeah. Lisbon is like Lisbon. I can describe it this way. Have you ever seen photos of Havana? Oh, really? It looks like that, okay, but with a lot more tile. But with the um, with the the geography of San Francisco, in fact, their bridge looks almost identical to the Golden People, Gate. People uh, like huh. Casey Lai was just saying that um, uh, Porto is supposed to like look just like San Francisco. I I've never been, but I thought Lisbon did. Well, also we never talk about the fact that both Spain and Portugal had like fascist dictators until the seventies. Yes, like which I think impacted you know the economy and maybe preserved some architecture by destroying anyone who tried to innovate or change. Right. Um, also, it's you can see there's like weird monuments in like the subways of Madrid that go so be and I know like London and Paris has this too so deep below the city yeah. you can see how people like went there during the spanish civil war to like uh you know escape tanks and artillery fire yeah. and stuff like that um by the way madrid i mean madrid is a nasty cum slut like pig bottom <laughs> yeah orgy sex club like there's sex clubs everywhere in madrid yeah. if that's where you want to go to be like a pig bottom that madrid is the place to go or berlin but madrid oh. is a much nicer weather oh. <laughs> Um, last uh, last time I was in London, I started talking to these two little boys uh, at a gay bar, um, and they got into an argument between the two of them about Brexit. And the one who was anti-Brexit was very concerned about would it make it harder to go to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's actually it's a concern. Yeah. You've done stand up in Berlin, though, Katie. Um, I didn't, but I went with my my grandmother. Who, I'm going again in September. She was. Oh, um, did you go to a stand up show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, and it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Was it English time. language or German? Uh, both. Yeah, uh-huh. it was a little fusion. Some of them would do half their sets in one and the other, but it was interesting because it's. I mean, it's stand up's kind of similar, but like 
it seemed like we were just in Silver Lake, but people were just speaking German because even the like intonation, the like da 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 da, everything. It was like I could funny. tell the punchline, but I couldn't. I just couldn't understand what I they were saying. I hate yeah. American cultural arrogance, but love the fact that we define the vibe. It like, was I, wild. Everybody, and also because of globalism, everyone just shops at H and M. Everyone looks the same. Yeah, it was even in like a a new coffee shop brewery in Berlin. Yeah. Um, and all the dudes just looked exactly like I would think they were going to open their mouth and just sound like American. Well, the, the, like the aristocratic joy with which like however much any of us don't matter in Los Angeles yeah. are not mattering in Los Angeles matters so much more anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, and I feel bad about it sometimes. Like, uh, you know, I was in Vancouver last month and I like went and like half acidly wanted to crash a show and it was like a good show that was overbooked. And then, uh, like a Canadian comic who lives here now was like, no, you should put guy on the show. And yeah. I like felt very guilty about it, but like, no, that it's also nice that people yeah. are like, LA, you are yes. in from LA. Yes. Please do our show. It is true. They did that in Oklahoma city. And I remember just telling them, cause we were sitting in someone's backyard, um, this street that your house on looks like Van Nuys. So yeah. this could, <laughs> if you had kidnapped me and then I, w- I would have thought I was in the Valley. So yes. It's yeah. not as impressive as you think it is. You know? I also do love going to those cities that have decided to try really hard in a Silver Lake way or getting to see those corners of like Salt Lake City that are like yeah. trying too hard because they in many ways are giving you a better life than you're getting here. Right. You know, and you still yeah. have the same. There's hipster coffee shops in Fresno. Yes. You know, you can do it. Oh, there's hipster Mexico City. I was so surprised when I asked for um, a nice coffee in Spanish. They didn't know what I was talking about because they don't. It's not like a Mexican thing traditionally to ice You say your coffee. iced coffee. No, you say cold brew. Me da, oh. me da un cold brew. And then there, I I uh, I I asked for cafe con hielo, and then she was like asking me in Spanish, "You want me to put ice in hot coffee?" And then she said cold brew, and then I was like, "Yeah." And then she pointed to the menu, and it said cold brew. Yes. It's like, and it was like in a very hip part of Mexico City, and I was like, "Oh, this culture is like global now. We've taken over everything." Yeah. How yeah. much have you done stand up in Spanish? I've never done stand up in Spanish. It is always interesting to me that question of sort of like. Th- that capacity because it's it's such a language based thing and like I'm always interested when I go to Montreal about the people who do I've only met like one or two people who do both francophone and anglophone mm-hmm. comedy and everybody's like yeah I speak both of them but this is the language that I do comedy in um and I wish I spoke another language well enough to figure out whether I could riff in it. You it's know? fascinating. That's I mean, that's yeah. uh, my goal is to improve my Spanish enough to where I could do l- comedy in it. But I mean, there are people who are completely fluent, like yeah, uh, my boyfriend's Chris Estrada. Who, he's he's fluent, but he can't do it, and it's his first language, and he can't do stand up in Spanish. Uh-huh. I counter that he just he doesn't he doesn't feel like it or doesn't want to. I think like if. If put to it, he could do it. He could you know? do it, but he feels like it's not the same cultural context. Well, the, I mean, that's style too. You know, that's translate. the thing. But even doing English language comedy somewhere else, there's always that question of like, does the thing that makes my joke a joke exist here? Right. Um, I did love last time I was in Montreal. There was a, a guy who was raised francophone, but was doing English language comedy. A gay dude, I forget his name, but he was very funny. But he had like a tag that he could only do in French, mm. and so he did it for this anglophone audience who live in Montreal, so all speak French. Right. And like everyone got the t- like the tag didn't work in English, and everybody got the tag, and then I didn't get the tag, and yeah. it made me sad. Um, yes. Um, speaking of that, um, guy, 
You are a very good stand-up. Yeah. Thank you. And you are a big yes. deal everywhere else and here. You guys are both very, very good exciting. stand-ups as well, who I always enjoy watching. That's very kind. Although, when I go on my DIY tours, but this is more just domestically, yes. um, saying that you're from L.A. is a death kiss. Especially, uh, like, in the Bay or Chicago. Bay, no, yeah. Never yeah. say that. In the Bay Area, like, yeah. but the thing is, is we, like, I started in San Francisco, and you did learn to dread and hate anyone who came from L.A. Mm-hmm. Because they always had infinitely better better credits than you and would get up at the punchline and you would complain about how they weren't really funny mm. but that's not true of you so you yes know. but sometimes the host can turn an audience in their intro to like make you have an uphill battle like the yes. first like oh, yeah. five minutes of your set yeah. is like just trying to convince yeah. like them like yeah. that you're fine you know yes. um you started in the bay right yes yeah how how long did you do stand-up for in the bay before moving here two and a half years really oh, that's yes. pretty, yeah oh my gosh and then you moved straight to la oh, well the thing is is i it's not because i believed in myself it was just like i got a job for a cable network that was in san francisco and then they got sh- bought and shut down and then they fired me but then they rehired me like with a nice raise and promotion but yeah. like but we're like you have to move to los angeles in a week um and okay. like that was a, a great way of getting to move but I was also not ready to move. And like, it was kind of hard because the people who I had started with stayed in San Francisco, got to like hone themselves there and like go to Montreal and stuff and like start getting buzz and then move like five years in where I came here. No one cared who I was and it was very hard. And I spent like a year floundering and then just, I spent the year 2005 pretty much just playing world of Warcraft and, um, (laughs) Uh, listening to show tunes, but um, not buying vintage tea sets. Not, not buying, yet. Not yet. <laughs> you I couldn't didn't have, have tea set money. <laughs> I didn't have tea set money. <laughs> but this is very interesting because this means you both are are a comic who did not start in LA, but you also do understand the experience of starting in LA. Yeah, I yeah. have long maintained that starting stand up in LA is like being molested as a child. Um, <laughs> you are just exposed to things too early in your development. Yeah that scar your like that give oh you God. insights but also scar you like oh you God. no one at a year and a half into stand-up should be like oh she has a manager and i don't right you know yeah. uh and yeah. i think that that's just something that does happen here but yeah i i took a lot of pride in being from san francisco because it is a city with like where altiness and clubbiness were like you know two sides of the coin and you had to be able to like understand both of them where here things were very different. San Francisco was also a place where going over to Oakland and performing for like black rooms was like something that was done and made me much stronger and better. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, but I, part of my journey was like uh, about halfway through when I was sort of like rebuilding myself after the roughness of quitting Chelsea lately and having my career fall apart. Um, was having to just sort of like embrace myself as an LA comic and Mm. being like, you know, really embracing the skills that are core to being an LA comic, which is like not being scared or intimidated, like being pushy enough to get where you need to go. Mm. Um, And like being breezily condescending to anyone who isn't from LA. (laughs) That that's one of the biggest lessons. I feel like that came very naturally to you. (laughs) (laughs) It, like it, I had to learn, but yeah. then it was fun to learn. 
that's one of the biggest lessons I remember um, learning from you when I because when I met you, I was 19, a year into comedy, and yeah. you just Facebook messaged me because we had a mutual friend, and you were yeah. like, "You're a young homosexual comedian. I should know you." <laughs> yes. and we met at the Starbucks in West Hollywood, yeah. and then we've known each other since. But I remember you've always said from the beginning, you need to be pushy. You need to ask. You need to ask again. You know what I mean? Which it is, doesn't it is, come natural to some people. Uh, no, and it, it didn't come naturally to me, which may be hard for people to realize now. But like in San Francisco, you did wait to be noticed. It was tacky and wrong. You really wanted those guys who ran the cool show to be, hey, will you do my show? And it felt really lovely when it happened. But here, like you... Like you can just float in a pool. You can't just float in the Pacific Ocean. Like mm. you have to be moving. And if you just try to float here, you will get ignored, right. you know? And there are some people for whom that's true and magic happens. Um, but most of the time, like I would say LA in the end makes better comics because you have to be good at all of the things. That's if you're, very true. If you're not funny, it's not going to last. But yeah. also if you're not a hustler, you're never going to get anywhere or, you know, you'll turn to vinegar. Yeah, it's so true because yes. there's so many people. And even, I mean, we when we ran shows, there were people we loved and thought were funny that we totally forgot about. Like, yeah. Or, yes. like, or we'd be like, we can't believe we haven't had them on and we've been doing the show a year. Or something, yeah, you know? it's, it's very true. But also LA is a very interesting place because it is, it your con it, it's a place where people move to from around the country, around the world. So it's every two years it's being flooded with hot, talented, mm-hmm. funny people yeah. who are coming from other cities, yeah. fully repped. Yeah. Yes. And you're just kind of like, Well, I've been doing it here for ten years, um, I don't know well, and, what to do. And but. also there's the danger of like it means that people have already seen you. They are, they think they already have a notion of who you are. Right. Yeah. Um, and th- that's really rough. Like the notion of being a new face here is like, it is either comic in one way or another. It is either comic because you've been doing comedy for nine months and you should not be going to right. Montreal or like there was a guy in new faces who's like 40 and has been doing this for a decade. Yeah. And like, I'm glad that stuff like that happens because you know, it it took the town a while to realize, you know, for reasons that that are so much my own failures um, and also other things. But it took the town a while to realize like, oh, hey, guy, we should care and pay attention. And, you know, I was really glad when that happened. Yeah. So when you moved here and you said so. How long after you moved here did you get the Chelsea Lately job? And that was your first writing job, right? So my first writing job was for this little cable network um, in San Francisco that I then moved down here with. That was for uh, Tech TV and then G4. That's so what you're talking about. You, Got it. Yeah. So okay. I, I was going to ask. So um, and if people don't know, I'm, uh, you were also you were previously a lawyer. You went to law yes. school and you passed the bar, correct? Yes. Yeah. And then you transitioned into comedy. Um, when you, how did you get your first TV writing job? So this was just uh, a friend of mine. Uh, so a woman who was a standup in LA moved to San Francisco for a, a job as a co-host on like a late night talk show on tech TV. Mm. Uh, and I met her at an open mic and she was like, you're funny. And then, um, uh, a couple of months after that, she asked me, to uh, be a fat guy in a tutu for a sketch that they were doing, and I did it. Um, and then they were just like, hey, do you want to come write for this thing? And uh, it, it was 
like very exciting. You know, I was like submitting for a job. It was my first packet and I worked so hard on it. And then I ended up getting the job and it was wonderful. The job didn't pay that well. It was not that high profile, but it was like a validation to me. Yeah. And then six months into that job, got fired because everybody was getting fired mm-hmm. um, or just about everybody. And then they rehired me and moved me down here. So that was okay. like six months after my first job. I had various jobs at tech TV for like two years. And then we got merged with the E network. Mm-hmm. Like we in the offices with oh. them. And I sat across from uh, this gay assistant who on my first day there, I laughed at a joke that someone else made and he leaned over to uh, the muscly hot gay guy who sat next to him and said, if I have to listen to that laugh every day, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> oh, my God. And I was just like, what a horrible person. These cute gay boys are being mean to me. Yeah. And then a couple of months after that, um, we became frenemies. And then I gave him a script that I had written. Um, and he gave it to his boss, uh, who was the head of development for E. And then when Chelsea lately had uh, a writing spot open, um, she recommended me. And I, yet again, yeah. got like a packet, went... Um, into you know just like stayed up all night working on the packet sent it in and then i got the job That's so amazing how soon how early into chelsea's show was she or how many years had it been it, the show had been going for six months okay so it's really so you got it, it in on the ground floor I didn't yes. realize that. okay yeah i mean it, it wasn't completely the ground floor like the rest of much of the rest of the writing staff had been there since the beginning but it was you know early enough that everybody was still figuring out what was going on and she was like on the rise. Like I got to be there for the three years when she was like turning into a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was really good experience. And it was really, you know, it's like late night experience on a show hosted by a woman is not, it's not, uh, there's not a lot of that, you know, you have an unusual trajectory in that you got, you came to LA with a writing job and then got into this. Yeah. Unusual. Yeah. Was the notion of doing a packet for the first writing job, the G4 tech job, um, like the first time you ever did a writing packet, did that daunt you in any way coming from being a stand-up? I mean, it was really scary because, you know, it was San Francisco. I didn't know anyone who had ever done anything like that, but it was very structured. Like what they wanted of me was very structured and it was clear. Um, and I just, in my head, I was like, it didn't feel like the sort of opportunity I was going to get in San Francisco mm. when I was starting the other guys around me were like four or five years younger than I was and weren't doing anything but stand up. And in my head, they were going to get to go be stand ups and I was going to be a lawyer who did stand up for fun. Mm-hmm. And I very much was like, they're going to be famous. I'm not. Um, Why did you already go into it with that mentality? I think because it? I think just sort of like a mixture of. Um, that's sort of like gay presumption that the world doesn't really care about my perspective mm-hmm. and feeling like old and not cute. Yeah. I mean, at like feeling old at 25, that's you know, what, that's, yeah. Yes. I mean, when I started stand up, I was 18, finished Kathy Griffin's book and thought I'm wasting my life. I'm old. Yeah. And then took yes. a bus directly to Sunset yeah. Grill in Hollywood and did stand up. And, <laughs> and I met you when I was 25 and I was like, I'm everyone's mom basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is that way that like stand up is like, built by and for like 22 year old boys in hoodies and any of the rest of us have to learn to talk their language and I think we have also done a really nice job of like yelling at them to stop being like that right Um, but it still does require like 
for any gay boy who's ever whiny about how broy the open mics are, mm-hmm. which you were never like that. I will always be like, fuck you. This is what you have to go through. I was like, opposite. I, 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 I always felt I was the camp of I'm excited for the mic. I could yeah. not wait to get off of work yeah. to yeah. go to the mic. Yes. I mean, like, I'm always weirded out by those people who are like, I want to do it. I just hate open mics. It's like, you don't really want to do it. Um, hey, some of them are getting on Colbert. No, I, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, there is that thing between like the, the Brooklyn gays and the LA gays because they have been so supportive of each other and I really, they have popped and are so likely to do like cabaret-y or sort of like not so straightforward stand-up things. Their aesthetics um, go, they, they feed into each other. You can see where they come from a little and, bit. And they also know? like, they collaborate with each other because they are doing like other weirder projects and I'm just always so proud of what a deep bench like LA has of like people who got jokes, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, but not haircuts. I would argue the, I mean the New York gays, the Brooklyn gays, they had it, they had it correct. I mean, I've said this to you before. They're the ones who are working, who are repped, who are doing it now. Yeah. All the LA gays, there's a few who are just starting. Yeah. Most of us, we are not even out of the stable yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? The lack of community has hurt us. We have jokes, but no one's seeing it. I know. And it, like, the thing is, is, but also New York is different. New York always had cabaret. New York always had a place for gay guys telling stories as long as they were divided by songs. I <laughs> am very... I'll tell you, I need to start singing in between your jokes. Absolutely. <laughs> the thing is, is I resolutely am just like, fuck no, I do not do that. Yeah. S- stop trying to to put me into that. Um, like, But it, one of the reasons that it's more okay is because also the real stand-ups at the cellar are able to be like, those faggots aren't real stand-ups. Mm. And, I, you know, like no one's going to make a joke about how Solomon Giorgio doesn't have punchlines because right. they would be torn apart by a t- punchline almost immediately. Right. Um, but, uh, <laughs> like, it, I like... I, the thing I am proudest of, I just want to say, is that first packet that I wrote for that first job. That's like, cool. I was just so, um, it's the, there are just such rare occasions where you actually put the work into something that you should. Like, you guys have both done packets that were like, oh uh, I waited too long on this. And it's, it's just so nice that, like, a couple of times I did it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. That's sometimes although do you ever feel this though Katie do you ever feel like you put too much energy into a packet where you're like let's calm down you know yeah, what I you mean over, of course you overthink and yeah. it, it always just depends on how much time you get which it's never yes. you never know sometimes it's 24 hours sometimes it's like oh, yeah sometimes it's two yeah. and it always I feel like you're just I it, think 24 hours is so much better than two weeks I think you, it is because we over, we slave and we like yeah like you know suffer over it and at the end of yeah. the day they're always hiring someone they know at the end of yeah. the day they're they're almost never I mean like Nikki and Sarah did blind reads for their mm-hmm. show I did blind reads for my show but like Kudos to you for that. Fucking Conan's not... I don't mean Conan personally. I mean, like, the writers of any of these late-night shows are not doing blind reads. They have somebody who they kind of want to hire. Well, that's our our question and why we're, like, so curious to talk to you is always, like, it's just always the same question. is like, how the fuck do you get hired, you know? But everybody has such a different path. I mean, you have such an unusual path in, you know? Um, Well, I I also kind of want to know, when you got into a comedy writing room at Chelsea Lately... What was being in that room like for the first time? Yeah, when well, did you feel like a real TV writer? Well, I, I think, so 
what I had been doing before I had had like a lot of responsibility, but it wasn't, but it was always sort of like solo. And there were other funny people at G4, but it wasn't like a room where we were pitching stuff around. I went to Chelsea lately with such a sense of like, I'm an imposter. Like, um, am I going to be able to survive here? And when I met the mostly old straight dudes who were writing for the show, it was this immediate moment of like, Oh, okay. Like at that point in time, I think maybe Heather McDonald was the only other, was the, was she the only female writer? Um, so like showing up, I'm, yeah, because Jen Kirkman hadn't been hired and Sarah Colonna hadn't been hired. So being able to be like, oh, yeah, they need a gay guy. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is Chelsea like Lately. I'm needed, yeah. Um, and there, there is just that terrible feeling the first time you go into a late night room of like, everyone starts and they know each other so well and I like sat down and someone was like, you don't sit there, you have to go sit over here. Mm. Um, and they s- go into a rhythm that they know and you just have to like dump into the double dutch and hope that you can survive. Yeah. Um, but I also think that one of the great things about being a stand-up is like when you're listening to somebody else's joke, you are so frequently writing your own punchline. Right. And like you just, it comes out of you and being able to find that confidence like a late night room is so much easier because it's just jokes flying around and everyone is sort of like relatively equal mm-hmm. um, when it comes to rank and how much you're supposed to be pitching. But when you get into like a scripted writer's room, so much of the time the adults talk and then knowing when you're supposed to pop in with jokes or pop in with an idea mm-hmm. is like a really rough game. And I, when I first started on the Mindy Project, I had been writing for television for years before that. Um, but I would sometimes pitch things and be a little quiet about it or not direct enough about it. Um, and my colleague, Tracy Wigfield, who was an executive producer on the show would, was still a woman and able to like, be like, guy just said something that is very funny and then repeat it and like do that sort of thing, which is great. And you know, that thing of at a table, Sometimes people are like, oh, we're the we're the big deals. We're the funny ones and just aren't going to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, you get into that thing of people repitching jokes that a woman has said moments before or shit like that. And what you need is somebody who's going to say, like, hey, no, stop that. And you have to trust yourself enough to be like loud. You know, you have to know that your joke is is good enough to to be right. And but there was sort of like um a learning curve of like with Chelsea specifically, I would sometimes pitch a joke that required a specific word order mm. or something like that. And she would like it at the table and she would be like, yes, put that in the pack. Like put that in the cards. And then when she would try to deliver it, she wouldn't deliver it. Cause that's not how Chelsea works. Mm. And like those first couple of months of getting into how does she tell a joke? Mm. Um, was really fun. Yeah. And there's also that thing of like when you're, writing for somebody else having to be like you know being able to like how does a joke about my pussy work how does a joke about my period work yeah um and that's you know a a fun challenge did you find in the room like can you tell a difference between stand-ups and like kind of straight comedy writers who aren't stand-ups yes um the biggest difference is stand-ups have an innate sense of how an audience will react like Mm -hmm. sometimes especially um like the worst of the Harvard guys will sometimes write jokes that are mathematically jokes that are not funny. Mm. Uh, and you would just immediately be like, no, no one's actually going to laugh at that. Um, and, uh, you know, that happens sometimes it happens less on 
Um, I would say the worst thing on late night shows is when somebody is popular in the room or is like beloved Mm. of the host and people are laughing at that. Um, But also on a late night show, an audience, your host still has to get in front of an audience and they are going to learn very, they don't like telling a joke that no one's going to laugh at. Um, And so they learn to love and treasure those jokes that are good and the people who are giving them jokes that that land and work um but sometimes and i've not you know luckily the shows many of the shows that i've worked on i really loved and found the people really really funny um but you do sometimes have those people who are just doing what they think comedy writing is yeah that's really do those people um have any of those do, do most of those people just kind of get the axe at a certain point well here was my big observation hmm. most here's why people hate harvard guy writers yeah. is because the they all are able to graduate from college and immediately get a job that is very prestigious and then the ones who are good only go on to more prestigious stuff and they stay on shows and work there forever and then the ones who are terrible slowly like fail their way down and you have to run into uh-huh. them on a thousand shows. So I first ran into uh-huh. those guys as they, f- you know, on their way down on your way up. Yes. Basically. Like a guy, uh-huh. you know, like a couple of guys who worked at G4 who had previously, like one of them had written for Seinfeld and SNL. Wow. And it's this question of like, why are you here? Oh. And then I learned why he was there. And now he hmm. went and got an, a master's degree in philosophy. And now he is a conservative uh, YouTuber. Really? Yes. Oh my god, what a wild ru- the journey the journey of a straight white man is <laughs> yeah. always That's why we need more movies about those journeys. Yes, yes absolutely. I've said that. Um, <laughs> no, but it, it was just sort of like a, a chilling thing. And me sort of thinking like, oh, all these Harvard guys are frauds. And then I went to the Mindy Project, which was full of like Harvard guys who got jobs when they were 22 and are astoundingly funny and sensitive and smart and mm-hmm. good writers and who are able to be um, white guys writing for a South Asian woman who yeah. listen to that South Asian woman enough to be able to write for her, yeah. you know? Right. In those rooms also, did you perceive from the beginning a dynamic of like being a gay man in those rooms? Um, one of the nice things about being a, a white gay guy, or I would just say like, Gay guys get fucked over in our understanding of our place in the world, um, but you do have a sense of authority and place that I think is n- not so easily offered to women. Um, so I think, and and I, I also benefited from being on a late night show at the beginning, where like a, a good joke is a good joke, and I also think being a stand up gives you a sense of confidence yeah. about this will work. Yeah. Um, Why and, do you think are are you saying that because gay men are still male? Over women? Is that what you're saying? I mean, in that room? The that you still is, get more respect then? Is that what you're saying? Like, the fact that we physically give you the vibes that the people in charge give you, mm. um, <laughs> like goes a long way I, I do think that there is a mind fuck that is placed upon us and I there was an article in Slate earlier about uh, Mr. Buttigieg who we will not speak of um, but was basically like oh well he has faced nothing he is just a cis white gay guy and it's like shut up you don't understand the mind fuckery but also my voice is still low you know like right. um, and which is not true of every gay guy but I do think there is a way that um, you're also like a physically imposing person I'm and very you large command, you command a presence so I, I don't always so it's more power. like suffer in the way that, that, that some gay guys do, but I do think... That's why I, you need to keep bulking. <laughs> <laughs> I remember observing that thing in a club of like the way that 
straight men felt comfortable turning off when there was a woman on stage. Um, mm-hmm. And that some women on stage like were not as willing to be certain that they were the most interesting thing in the room yeah. in the way that is just the base level necessity of stand up comedy. Yeah. Um, there were things like, let's be fucking honest on Chelsea lately. A lot of jokes got pitched that were, you know, fags are gross jokes or something like that. And the thing is, is from the beginning, uh, like I didn't even think about it. I was very like, no, you're not doing that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I wasn't at, like, I did have a ramp up of how comfortable am I being, but doing that. But once I knew that I had a place there, I was also just like, stop it, you know? And I, you know, and not just about gay things, but other things. And like, they didn't always listen to me, but I at least said it, you know? Uh, I think once you get into narrative, um, those are weirder questions of, of who, like who gets represented and how are we representing them? And I'm really, I feel so thankful for the extent to which I've written on a lot of shows that are about women. I have been on majority female staffs, more than any woman because like they so frequently have to be the one woman on a show that is all dudes where if I'm on a show, it's a lady show, you know, (laughs) that, that does reinforce my opinion about comedy, which is, women are responsible for giving gay men most of their jobs. Well, it's like, you know, every like gay men, like currently I am working on a show where that is run by Gabe Liebman that is executive produced by Sean Hayes. Like it's nice and exciting. It's also not what has happened for most of my career. The hands that have been extended to me are Mindy Kaling, Sarah Silverman, you know, um, the Joan Rivers job I got because of a gay guy. But like, you know, most of the comfortable mentorship I have gotten has been from women. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, without women, gay men would not work nearly as much as they do. Because the thing is, is this and I've not been a TV writer, but I just know from stand up. All the straight boys can be acquaintances with you. They can respect you. They can come up to you all day and say, you're so funny. They won't hire you. And yes. they won't even think to do that. Because they won't collaborate with you. They won't recommend you to their reps. It, they're just not going to think they don't, that way. Because they, they don't think about you as like me. And the, right. and, and also with stand-up, just the thing of like the idea of being taken as an opener for things. And I, like, I feel self-conscious about... Um, in many ways, sometimes I will be self-conscious about taking uh, a gay guy as a feature act because I'm like, oh, this is a lot for this audience. Is this audience, you know, this is what they wanted. And then with women, it's like, am I, you know, how self-hating am I being that like, but also it's like, I also do definitely understand it as my obligation to, be present for women and women of color within yeah. stand up because like women have been so beneficial to me and I only benefit like we all benefit from a stand up world that sees our perspectives as mattering mm-hmm. like I there are some gay guys who have the philosophy of like oh I'll talk shit about women as much as the yeah. straight guys do and they'll see I'm one of them. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's like you, you were getting to be a little mascot. You're not getting mm. to be a participant. Yes. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I am better off in a world where we are able to acknowledge that Jackie Cation and Lori Kilmartin are masters of their craft who deserve as much as any fucking Bill Burr, yeah. you know? Right. That's it does seem like that in, in Hollywood right now where in terms of gay guys getting work, 
it seems like you fall into two polar opposites. You fall into cute and twinky with highlighter femme. Great. Okay. Or you fall into repressed closeted or basically spouting like straight conservative talking points, but being gay. So there's a novelty. So you're either like hyper mask and repressed or this other femme side, but anyone in the middle doesn't really get any. Well, I I think that we are just not comfortable with the idea of um, gay men having perspective. Like um, we, not that we're comfortable with women having perspective, but like um, gay men, it's like, in what way are you an accessory to my life? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that there is beautiful transition. Like in the nineties, good work was done by gay men as handbag of lady. Um, But I think it makes it hard now to have somebody (laughs) shout out to Rupert Everett. (laughs) It was my dream. It's the Um, basis of our relationship. I think. Yes. I mean, he was so much more than like the amount of, biography that Rupert Everett brought to the table of like oh yes I've written three books about how I was a prostitute in the south of France Mm. like makes what he did in my best friend's wedding like he was never going to be consumed by that he's the fucking best yeah um it is oh like realizing the number of gay sassy gay friends and romantic comedies who have been played by gay guys Mm. I mean you got your Rupert Everett who were out at the time oh yeah you got your Rupert Everett you got me you don't have much in between yeah I was the sassy gay friend in No Strings Attached in 2011 I was you didn't say it I was let it never be forgotten (laughs) yes and um I just recently watched a YouTube video that someone uploaded from the late 80s just for laughs and it was the all queer showcase and it just made me cry hmm. because I was like um, all of those people disappeared all those dis- uh, all those I was people- like, oh, it's because they were all in blazers <laughs> no 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 they um, they all disappeared um, I looked up some of them about 80% of that lineup is not working or not like in yeah. show business many of them were very funny and I was just kind of like Wow, like there was just whole generations of queer talent that just disappeared into the uh, into the air. And it was one of the cool things about San Francisco is one of the rare places other than New York where I could go do a gay show and where I got exposed to people who were experienced and masterful at what they did who were just never going to go anywhere else. And like um you know uh Marga Gomez in the 90s like got opportunities she was like this gorgeous super smart Latina at a point in time when we were excited about Latinas and lesbians and like she got to the seven minute place and then no one had anything else for her to do and like she still does these amazing one person shows in San Francisco but it just like pisses me off that there wasn't more of a world for her or like you know no one fucking remembers bob smith the first gay man on the tonight show Yeah, i only heard about him when he passed yeah um and like no one's worried about it and the thing is is at the end of the day gay guys kind of don't want stand-up from gay guys we want stand-ups we want like stand-up from women um we want gay guys to be hot or in a dress Right. It's very Mm -hmm. true. Um, As I uh, will tell all of those fucking college students at NACA who did not book me, they all came up to me afterwards, though, in the lobby and were like, we're queer and we love no bookings. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, thank you, guys. Thanks for that. Wonderful. Um, But um, how what is your advice for queer people um, out there in the 
in the entertainment industry to have a career like yours where you're working, you're successful, you have your own TV show, you know, you're writing uh, for movies now. Like, how do you not disappear? Um, that's a very hard question. Mm-hmm. Here is advice that um, I gave to Mr. Bowen Yang a couple of years ago that has been completely not true of his career. But <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> I, I still think um, what, I, what I said to Bowen after he had like a, uh, a rough setback and I just said there's not a U-shaped hole in this industry. There's not a, like a, a place where they just need exactly you. So you have to make the things that like you have to make that hole for yourself. And I, I realize that it can be bad to assume to too much identify yourself as an other. But like I think just being practical and saying like it would be lovely if somebody spots you and is like, that's exactly what I've been looking for. But like, you have to be making your own things. Like literally, I, you know, I came to a time, uh, after I left Chelsea lately, um, we had the same agent, we were repped by the same agency and then she expressed her dissatisfaction with me leaving and then they did not represent me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, who can say if these things were related? Yeah. Um, but I was having a very rough time and like, you know, there came the point when I was all out of money and I couldn't get a job. And I was like, do I have to go be a lawyer now? And that was when, um, you know, this idea for talk to the game show that had been floating around in my head for years. I was like, I'll just do, I'll just figure out how that would work. And I'll start doing that because that was, <laughs> I kept trying to find the next place for me within the industry. And I realized that what I needed to do was find the thing that I wanted to be doing while also trying to find the next place for me in the industry. At the end of the day, you have to like and love what you're doing. And and the thing I always say about stand-up is like, you need to be happy if you just get to do stand-up, which is something like, I worry about you, Jonathan, for so many reasons. But the fact that you love doing this means that you will always be drawn through by it. And there are those people who just get too pissy about the fact that they are it's not all coming together for them. And it's like, you first you just need to really be happy that you are getting to do stand-up, you know? Um, But on top of that, but also we can turn very bitter if we just get to do stand-up and don't get to do stuff on top of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, every day, uh, I mean, I can't speak for Katie, but every day for me is a constant exercise in how to not turn into pure vinegar. Yes. And the thing is, is you do stuff like this. You create opportunities for yourself. Um, You remind people that you're around. Like, um, you, you kind of do have to just be twice as harding and um hope that you hope that you get somewhere and also just sort of understand the first half of the career is harder for you and the second half of the career is easier for you because a lot of those interchangeable boys um don't have anything to say and they're able Mm -hmm. to get to the mid part of the career by doing what looks like stand-up and then once there comes a time that they have to have something to bring to the table. They don't have something to bring to the table. And when you've had to struggle, when you've had sort of like a journey in perspective, um, like you have something to say. And I also think when you have learned to look through other people's eyes, um, you are better able to adapt your skills to the world around you. I think if anything, I'm a little too bad at working for like, I'm too inclined to work for other people and don't necessarily enough sort of like focus on the things that are, for me 
Um, but it has been nice in the last couple of years um, when people have been more likely to come to me with things and say like, hey, I would like to work with you on this or sort of like, do you have a take on this? Now, getting back to when you gave your script to that person who worked at E, the guy who yeah. you were frenemies with, yes. was that your first narrative pilot that you wrote? Yes. Um, what did you think going into that? Because I think people who are new at writing, um, writing your first spec or pilot is insane. Uh-huh. And you feel like I'm an amateur, I'm completely a faker, you well, know? It's weird because there are those people who have like a degree in television who had someone sort of like shepherd them through the process of it. And I was definitely not one of those people. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really know what a TV show was supposed to be. This, um, it had funny jokes and a strong take and other people gave me criticisms like, Peter Saji, who is now the showrunner of Mixed Dish and, you know, uh, wrote for Blackish Forever and is very, very funny. He was one of the freelancers who worked for me at G4. And when I gave him the script, he was like, no one wants premise pilots. Um, What's a premise pilot? Premise pilot is a pilot where the the pilot sh- creates the situation that is the sitcom. So, um, you know, a, a premise pilot of Gilligan's Island is they crash land on the um uh, on the island like a different pilot is they're on the island and they've been on the island got it so yeah. if i got P- katie pregnant yes. and then we raise our baby together that's the premise pilot yes right. there we go. um yeah. peacock bought that this year from, okay from, 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 from chris schleicher <laughs> okay cool um, yeah but that's his real life though that's his real yeah. life yeah yes. that, oh that's interesting um, yeah, yeah, yeah but uh you know people gave me advice and like the assistant that I gave it to, he like had a couple of notes for it and I didn't necessarily believe in them, but I put them in because I wanted him to feel like he had participated and and that gave him a sense of uh, attachment to it. Um, And the thing is, is his boss read it and enjoyed it. I got the job at Chelsea lately and then um, it got handed around a little bit. The thing is, is that I have written specs since then that people haven't liked nearly as much, but that one people liked and that got handed around. Uh, and that was a situation where the script got handed around, but it wasn't until somebody put together that, hey, that guy who was funny on Chelsea lately is who wrote this script that mm-hmm. that sort of like came together and I started getting like a little bit of buzz. In terms of for people who are not repped where let's say it's a very kind of like open submission type of thing where they're kind of like just send anything it could be a spec or a pilot is there a choice that you prefer do you prefer writing specs pilots do not care the thing is is that essentially no one wants to read uh, a spec of another show when i say spec i mean um a a pilot like an original essentially now people only want original pilots which is fucked up because that's not the job the job is not being able to like pitch a show and there are so many people who go out without much experience and pitch a show and sell it and then they have a rough time with it Mindy Kaling is always like I I would sort of rather read your you know spec of a of a show um, rather than um, your original pilot because I want to see if you can write for my show Um, but right now what the fuck would you write a spec of because like Nothing there. There isn't that much that is like good or funny, and everything is so serialized that the notion of writing a standalone on your own 
um, is a little weird. So uh, it is like a hard thing. Mostly I just, it's so hard to write a half hour on your own. And then once you watch people who have done it a thousand times, do it. You realize how much easier it is than you've been putting yourself Mm. through. And it like, it becomes a much smoother process. That's really, um, it, it is nice, but also terrible. You have to get in the room to figure that out. Yeah. Do you yeah. like, um, do you like writing for late night or narrative more? Um, well, <laughs> so much of this is just defined by our industry in like a really gross way of a person on their first scripted job makes more than pretty much anyone who is writing for a late night show, unless they are an EP and then it only gets better from there. Yeah. Um, and it's also just not as hard of a job. I miss and I'm proud that I worked on a daily show. And I miss that feeling of you wake up and pitch all of the jokes in your head and it you know, move so along. It seems so hard to like. I mean, between the two, it seems like it seems so like much it harder. lends more yeah. to stand ups. Like, uh, you know? yes. And, right. and like, I one time to Emily Heller. Cause she like just started in, in narrative and I was like, you should work on late night. You're so funny. You would be great on late night. And she was like, why would I want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> like I show up cause when you're a staff writer, you really are just expected to speak once or twice a day on a narrative show and keep your ears open and listen and learn where, you know, if, if you're at a late night show, you're just supposed to jump in and have jokes. And if you don't jump in and have jokes, you're not going to get another 13 weeks on that show. Yeah. Right. Do you, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go. Um, do you feel like, so when you're in a room, like a narrative room, uh-huh. uh, are, is it a very kind of clear distinction of like, these are story people, this person, this is like the gun for hire to come in and shoot jokes into this. Like what's the, um, so, uh, all of the titles on a scripted show are deeply like are deeply defined and hierarchical. Everything from executive producer all the way down to staff writer, you understand that you have a rank. And it is less true on cable shows. It is less true in smaller rooms. But the more networky of a room you're in, like you know where everybody is. And th- and there is that difference between these are story people and these are jokey people. But if you are at the lower end of the table on a comedy show you're probably not going to get to weigh in on plot that much. And you're probably, and that means you better be earning your keep mm-hmm. when it comes to jokes. And it's always interesting seeing those people who were not standups, like at the Mindy project, a fair number of people made it to the table by being assistants and stuff, because I think women are more likely to take that path rather than sort of like risking everything on, yeah. I'll, I'll go to bar, like I'll go to bars and tell jokes and that's supposed to get me a job. Yeah. And also let's be fair. I was a decade older than, you know, anyone else who showed up as a, as a staff writer there, but also like you have to be developing that ability because the time when you get to add content is when we're going through with jokes and it really requires a more sophisticated understanding of how a joke works than a lot of people who just like TV, Mm, you know, like you like not just pitching a change that is parallel but is really making things better okay can i tell you a lovely story from like my first month at uh at the mindy project yes so i had been working there and and i was tentative um you know it was one thing that was really nice is i started midway through the season so mindy wasn't in the room and they weren't doing um story stuff so i think i might have been more reticent but when i showed up they were doing punch up and Mm -hmm. so it felt more like um a late night room yeah um 
but like the the showrunner left and the you know one of the other uh, like a co-ep took over typing uh and it was the very nice lady who would like repeat jokes and stuff and so i felt more comfortable with her and i pitched some joke i forget what it was but when the other showrunner came back in the room he sat down and was reading through her jokes and he was like a joke should do three two of three things it should be funny it should um move the plot or it should go to character but the best jokes do all three this joke does all three and it was just this lovely moment he didn't know that that was my joke but it was just this lovely moment uh and like you know of course the room was immediately like that was guy um which was very lovely but um just being able to identify shit like that and also know when a callback is clever and know when a callback is shitty Mm -hmm. you guys have been in enough goddamn shows (laughs) to know when somebody somebody's callback it looks like a joke but isn't a joke right uh and you know when you got your way there by being um like a a script coordinator you're not going to understand that in the Mm -hmm. same way you're going to understand a lot of other things about the writing process um but not that, and it's, it is interesting. The show that I'm on right now, there is a, a, a great stand-up who is a staff writer for the first time, and one of the things that's really cool is she's asking a lot of questions, which sometimes would be shit on. She's working with a showrunner who's really cool about it, but like she's fucking learning things and figuring things out, and it can be hard and weirdly intimidating. Yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, you kind of talked about kind of like do's and don'ts, but that's really interesting to hear about. Um, yeah, just kind of like your value add in the room. If you well, can kind of. It was really interesting. On the Mindy Project, there was one staff writer who did not speak. He like pitched two jokes for his like six months there mm-hmm. and he did not get asked back. And then there was a, a writer who had been the writer's assistant and then came in and they did not want to do make the same mistake and they talked constantly <laughs> in a way oh my that was like really rough and just having that sense of like just knowing am i helping can be a really hard judgment call yeah you know yeah yeah do you when you are pitching as a low-level staff writer jokes in the room um it are you expected to perform in a way um like in my mind it, it seems like it would be a little bit different for late night which is just like jokes 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 but for something like narrative is there overdoing it selling your pitch not selling it enough well i mean there is that thing of which i think stand-ups learn so beautifully of like not not understanding what off is and understanding what too much is and i like the thing is in any room you all there's always doing jokes for the room Mm -hmm. and that's a you can't do too much of that you shouldn't do too much of that but sometimes you're doing fucking jokes for the room because everybody being in a better mood is better. One of the things that was really funny at the Mindy Project was you had all of these people who were not performers who would sort of perform more when pitching a joke. They would like do the voices of the characters sometimes and stuff like that. And I would never do that. I always had like a, a very much a sense of, um, well, you should be able like the joke stands on its own. <laughs> right? The joke should stand on its yeah. own. Uh, and sometimes for a charactery joke like that's not true like it, it what the thing that makes it work is the person who's doing it or how that relates to things um but yeah like 
I, I would never do that. And like, it's funny the uh, the showrunner who hired me on the Mindy Project, who I love very much. One of the things he was telling everyone in the room what he had thought of them when he first met them in their interview. And the thing he said of me was he seemed quiet for a stand-up. Um, oh, I get that all the time. So... Yeah. But I also think he's used to deal. He was used to dealing with these like clubby guys who get yeah. brought in to like, yeah. to do jokes and they're like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. like f- trying to like perform for the room and sh- yeah. be like, I'm a cool guy. And like, I am very much like, you know, yeah. I, I, like I'm, I'm like you. I'm sort of like a cerebral comic who, like, this is a joke that works. And but that thing of like having to get to a place of, oh, I'm certain enough that this will land with the room, and then quick enough to get that out in a loud voice can be hard. And being able to deal with stuff that like doesn't land for the room or have somebody, like. What's interesting is finding the bosses who are best at bringing out the best mm-hmm. in their employees, in, in yeah. writers, creative employees. Like the thing I will like, Billy Eichner was the best at saying no to a joke, but making you understand that he like loved you for pitching. Cause like that is a show that requires a lot of shitty pitches. Yeah. To get- <laughs> like a, a lot of super gay or weird pitches being made and understanding that thing that is like, it really is just a sensibility thing of, you know, being able to grasp that correctly. And, you know, you can feel like there's egg on your face after you say the thing. Cause like, you know, sometimes, uh, all right, this is me getting pissy. Uh, like we had a Paula Abdul related topic on, um, (laughs) Chelsea lately. And I made a DJ scat cat joke and no one knew what I was talking about and looked at me like I had just shit on the table. And then, Like then I explained to them who DJ Scat Cat was and then suddenly any time Paula Abdul came up, somebody else at the table was making a DJ Scat Cat joke and I was like, fuck oh, you. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, sometimes it, it like the joke doesn't gel with the room or it doesn't land or it isn't like fully formed. Right. One thing I would say is here's here's the tea. Um, when you're a low level staff writer, never... Always present people with a joke. Like, um, don't just say, oh, well, we could do something like this, or what if we... That's not for you to do. Like, you don't... Except in the rarest of situations, don't hand somebody a kit for a joke. Make the joke. And if it isn't the right joke, but it's in the right direction, they will work it from there. But then the other thing is, uh, especially as a lower-level writer, um, like, have you guys ever... um, been encountered the idea of don't negative pitch or pitch fixes um, oh pitch a solution basically p- yes right? yeah. don't just say something is bad and right. too many people think that that is part of their job and like it yeah. is your showrunner's job mm. to say that doesn't work yeah it is your job to say something that works and i have definitely been in rooms where everybody was comfortable being negative just but shitting it, on all the stuff. but it doesn't it doesn't come to an answer yeah. you know like right. you have to we have to find an answer we have to know how this would work you know are there days where you guys just couldn't get anything done where it was just fucking around or everyone was just like not firing on full cylinders well it, it, the lovely thing of like a, a daily show is you have to do something <laughs> and so there are definitely days like no one watched Chelsea lately and was like, 
everyone was excellent. <laughs> like n- no one was ever like, the, um, but the thing is, is we got it done every day, um, which is a thing. There are definitely days that are some more productive than others. I have been on shows where uh, I have been on staffs where the showrunners were not great at what they were doing mm. um, and where positive progress didn't happen. That was the result of a showrunner not having a vision. Um, it's a lot of responsibility, but um, in in the late night sense, if someone hands you a list of 50 jokes and you can't find the 10 best jokes on that, that's your fault. Yeah. And you don't get to, like, that is what your staff gave to you. And, you know, if you hired the wrong staff, fire some people and get new and better people. But you cannot just be hunting for better. You sometimes have to look at what is in front of you. Like, there are days that are sometimes less productive. And also, I have generally worked on shows that had um, more reasonable hours. There are some shows, like, apparently on 30 Rock, because Tina was, like, on set so much of the time, there was a lot of downtime. There was a lot of... They worked until 2, but they, like, watched documentaries in the room and stuff like that. Shows I've been on have been more focused than that. But they're definitely... There was this delicious time of the year when all of the episodes were written and we were only just sticking around to like do punch up or like pick up audio on stuff where uh, we played a lot of GeoGuessr. Um, <laughs> we would just like watch documentaries, yeah. um, which was very fun. But it's the reason that even on a show that is not daily, you must let like the schedule has to be in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, and everybody has to respect the schedule. And it was very funny. The show I'm on now, um, there's a pilot and then I'm writing the second episode because I'm one of the two co EPs on the show, which is like exciting, but it also meant that I was having to establish the pace Mm. for how long does it take to get an outline done? How long should an outline be? And it was like, kind of pressure um and then you know the showrunner kind of being like this is guys this is great but it's a little more dialogue than i think is necessary and just being like "Ah, i hope i do it right oh yeah because this show that you're on now you are in a position now of being on a higher rank in the room and this is is this co-ep i mean you had your own tv show but in terms of a co-ep for narrative this is kind of new territory yeah that's so interesting and can we Actually, also, we need to talk about you getting your own TV show. Yes. And yeah. um, I would... Can I just ask two questions? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go, go. Um, since you came to com- comedy from another career and uh, you feel like you're, quote, old- older than everybody, how do you think that that's benefited you? Oh, um, being trained as a lawyer gave me much more clarity of mind in taking facts and structures and working them together, which I think... Um, I mean, I always say that like it drained me of my soul, but I think that there is benefit to that. Um, And I think as time goes on, maybe the highs aren't as high, but the lows aren't as low. And so you're just able to sort of like manage yourself through stuff that would maybe crack you. Like I mean, just that kind of just being maturity. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I I hear some stories about some kids who get opportunities very early and they have a rough time with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I just knew like, you know, I don't know. I've made terrible mistakes, but, um, like I've kept going. Um, I think so. And, And like, I've definitely had like 
very low times when, you know, 2011, 2012, it was hard to get work. Um, and I think I just had a scrappiness mm-hmm. of just like do what it takes. Yeah, you just seem, um, you seem very tenacious. Yeah, and look, I'm also lazy, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think the best comics are. <laughs> I think <laughs> that thing of being able a lot. Some people I have known like get presented with something and they're like, I can't do that, and. I think I have behaved a little bit more like, I guess I have to do that. I mean, figure it out. Yeah. Fucking working on punked working on, uh, let me tell you about punked <laughs> punked was like straight boys who were like so proud of themselves for like having this job and thinking they were so cool. And they were like totally having sex with all of the famous girls who were on the show. And they were like very much the right sensibility for it. Haha. Wouldn't this be funny? And I was wrong for it, but I was able to, like I essentially just typed things out for coked up boys um, and it was not a good job and I hated it, but I fucking got it done. You know, that was like, and that's an iconic (laughs) credit. I mean, (laughs) as a bitch raised in the two thousands, I mean, my God, like, I mean, this was very late punked. uh, Yeah. You helped because I mean, you wrote for punked, you were on Chelsea. I mean, you helped form, 2000s culture especially right. for like people like us I, the first time i saw you was on chelsea lately on a desk completely naked oh yes and i felt and i honestly you felt seen. No, no no i did and there that this was in high school around the time that i was like very into like kathy griffin and margaret cho and like yeah. really into stand up and then thinking like and then seeing chelsea lately and you on it and being like oh maybe you can carve your a space out and do this yes you know what i mean and the thing is is like I will criticize that show and I will criticize her, but she was so generous and wonderful about that and really was like, you know, shared the spotlight really nicely in a way that not everybody does. Like, and you know, so did so many other people, W. Kamau Bell, like, you know, like, you know, like it's really nice. And also like Chris Rock was Chris Rock when he, like EP totally biased. It was so much about like, let's give voices to people who, who don't have voices. So Chris Rock seems to be really good at that. Like even from suggesting Leslie Jones to Lauren being like, this woman is ready. It doesn't matter that she's 50. Yeah, no. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing that's so interesting to me is this readiness to just like when you've ignored people for a really long time, some of them are going to be like, not exactly who you're looking for. You know, like I, I remember when um, Jessalyn like, had a show and I was like, do they have any female writers? And my friend who wrote on the show was like, oh, they tried really hard. And he listed the people who they were asking and they were like the buzziest of female comics, but it wasn't the people who are good at roast jokes. Mm-hmm. And um, it was like, you know, just a little like, f- fuck you, you know, like you, you know, Tig's not 22 because when Tig was 22, nobody knew that they needed Tig, right. you know? right. Yeah. Um, do you think that now, as you have a long list of credits behind you, do you think that writer rooms are getting more diverse than they were in the past? Um, yes, but how that plays out is interesting. Like a lot of the time, I think people are behaving as the. Uh, it's the trouble of it's still mostly white guys in charge. So, and I asked um, a showrunner. Um, who like the second season of her show shifted to focus more on characters of color. And I was like, how do you write that show uh, while being the showrunner? How do you not make the wrong choices? And she was essentially like, 
there's no good answer. I hired a high level black female writer and a lower level black female writer. And I told them, you can always countermand me on anything here, but I still can't trust that they are able to trust that. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm the one who's in charge. Like there's no good answer. So much of the time, the, only person of color in the room is the lowest ranking person. I was on one show where the only person of color in the room was the writer's assistant. And how much that bitch stepped up and was like, we can't do that. Mm. Um, wow. Really beautiful. And I don't know that they have gotten as much mentorship from the person who was running that room as they would have if they had known their place. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that they so much of the time like the people in charge can see um, diversity as an obligation or symbolic. Um, And like, it's rough. I mean, just down to, there was a joke on 30 rock about where two for says, is that why my check is a different color? Yeah. And like, it sounds like a joke until you realize like in a lot of rooms, the, the check for a staff writer of color is being paid for from a different fund from everybody else's like, uh, you know, um, like salary. Uh, And it leads to a situation where rooms, you'll have somebody who comes on for a season, doesn't get asked back. And then they just keep cycling through staff writers of color instead of getting to a situation where you have a co-producer of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there are situations I was on one staff where there were, it was a very small staff. It was only six writers, two women of color, one of whom was like showrunner level. Mm. And our showrunner just didn't listen to her. And it was like, you have this person here who can like stop you from making mistakes, who can yeah. guide, like, this is a proven commodity who can do this job. And, you know, <laughs> Like it is a weird mix of collaborative and authoritarian um, where that person who is in charge is still making the calls and those people are much less diverse. And there's also this way that we have this idea that writers rooms like um, that the, the, the white guys are the funny. Right. And so when it comes to late night shows, there will so frequently be this sense of like, oh, the the people of color are here symbolically. Right. Um, you see that so many in scripts and in just produced things too, yeah. where it's like, oh yeah, they have a, a bunch of people of color. They don't get to do the comedy though. They're setting up the white people yes. to be silly and ironically racist and funny. Well, yeah. If but I, I see that joke, if I see ironic racism one more time, I it, fucking, it's my least favorite thing when they're like, Oh no, we're all wearing white. And it says uh, whites only. And then a poor black person has to be like, like, yes. Um, noble, you know, um, it's, it's really rough. And so much of the time just comes down to, we're not working hard enough to find those people um, who can do the job and do it well and also do it from a different perspective. Like, uh, I mean, yeah. How has all this fuckery with the agencies and the WGA changed things for you in terms of getting jobs, if it has at all? I mean, the thing is, is like, I've worked just as consistently and not had to pay 10% to my agents. Um, my agents are great and have done a lot of things to 
develop stuff for me. But like at the end of the day, my current job I got from a DM on Twitter. Like my job at the Mindy Project I got from a DM in t- on Twitter. Wow. Like you know, so much stuff is just like. Um, you know, somebody knowing you and knowing that you can do the job and asking you to do it. Um, yeah. What would be, and this is a lofty ask, but what would be your advice to people like us who are like very, I'm going to just go ahead and say just very much like on the outside, meaning like we're not repped. We have to wait for like chances. When we do get a chance, it's like, oh my yeah. God, feast or famine. I know really, we're, we're like huh? wolves. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> we're eat, and we're cunning. We're like, oh, did I meet that producer that one time? You will get an email from me asking for a packet. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. have to do that or because, or else I would get nothing. No. And the thing you know? is, is I think, um, when you do, I mean, you have to be pushy. Like when, you submit a packet to a show, emailing the person you know who works on that show to be like, will you look at this packet? Or, hey, if you hear anybody bring up my name, will you, like, vouch for me? Um, Like, having good stuff to show. And I mean, like, the great thing about stand-up is it is this, like, beautiful calling card where, like, people do see you and people don't even, like you don't necessarily know it when it's happening, but like um, the other night I went to the Humanitas Awards with Lindy West and the other people at our table, cause we're like the other Hulu show that was nominated for something, um, which was The Handmaid's Tale. And the nominated writer from The Handmaid's Tale was like, oh yeah, I read the names of the people uh, who were gonna be at the table and one of our writers had seen you do stand up and so we started talking about you. And it's like, I, I like, mm-hmm you don't realize it at the time, but just doing stand up in LA is like a beautiful investment, but also like, you know, building a brand so that they do very much remember, Oh yes, that was Jonathan, you know, um, is important. And like using the people around you to have us, like when you get the moment to send something, being ready to send something like one of the things I'm so proud of from you is, am I allowed to talk about the Gloria Calderon Kellett of it all? Sure. Um, But just when somebody said to you, do you have a spec script? You said yes. And then you wrote a spec script overnight. (laughs) Um, Yes. Which she responded positively to. I mean, the thing is, is like at the end of the day, you guys are going to be able to put jokes into things and it literally (laughs) like, even in a world where our comedies aren't as funny as they used to be, it's like, that's what matters. Like they just want to know that you have the capacity to work hard, listen, and that you have jokes inside of you. Um, It is rough and hard. And then the other thing is like, make things that are the right forum for you. Mm -hmm. Know what your skills are. I I mean, it's the best thing about stand up is like talking about the things you like to talk about most is going to be powerful like it's going to be the powerful thing that you have to leverage is like we are able to build arenas that are for us you know like talk show the game show um which is the like format that i did and then was a show on true tv like was just very much suited to my bombastic nitpicky like um combative nature and it's now a little bit sad that like the show has come and it's been like canceled now it's like oh shit i like have to invent a new form like if i want to be able to do this again i have to invent a new format 
that's also fun. I have to figure out some other way that is a different cool forum for some other cross section of my skills. And like being able to do stand up for stand up sake is wonderful. But I would say it is more like wanting to just be good at that and have that flower for you is like maybe something that straight white guys get to do yes. and yeah. like that we don't get to do as much. Yeah. Um, but like it's hard work, but creating those forums for yourself where people really do get to see you being your most self, mm-hmm. like they don't always work out. It doesn't always turn into um, a TV show. But I remember like when Heather Thompson used to do a show that was like tea time with Heather. It's like, yes, that's yeah. like, wow. that is somebody getting to like, that is getting to know Heather. Did you guys fucking go see Jacqueline's show when it was in town? No. Um, uh, get on your knees. Uh-uh. Like it's just Jacqueline Novak who you could watch at a show and like you know my immediate reaction to Jacqueline Novak was like oh oh what a delightful presence like oh how fun but also like seven minutes of somebody else's show like is not necessarily giving you exactly what you wanted out of stand-up like yeah. uh, first time I saw her she was like pacing around and she was talking and then there was noise at the back of the room and John early tried to shush them and she said no my job as a stand-up <laughs> is if nothing else holding attention and I was like I will respect this woman for the rest of my life but like get on your feet is an hour an hour and a half of dick jokes that all of which builds to a complex and beautiful argument about women's bodies and narratives. Mm. No one else can do that. Like Jacqueline Novak built a thing that anyone has to look at and be like, that's genius. And like no one else could do that. And it's hard to find that thing for yourself. And sometimes it's a journey and a struggle, but there's also something so lovely about like all the stand up we do is research for that because we decide exactly what we want to do in those seven minutes, you know, or 10 minutes or 15 or whatever it is. And I think we get to understand what our voices, and I don't think I've always done a a good job of being able to transfer those stand-up skills to like auditions and stuff. And I think there are those people who really do so intimately understand their voice that they are able to go into an audition and not do what an actor does, but do what a stand-up does and yeah. have people just like, well, you know. I think that's nice about being in stand-up for so long is that I feel like we both as much were like frustrated at times. It's like the longer you do, you do have way more sense of your voice. And like, like I loved our web series talk show because it was like, we were like, if we could do our dream ridiculous thing, what would we do? And we did it. That was fun. It is true. Yeah. Honestly, Living with Jonathan and Katie. Would, Check it out on YouTube. I would do it if if Logo wanted to green light us for their digital and pay us $20 an hour to do that show. <laughs> I would do absolutely do it. Yeah. We had so much fun. But one thing I want to talk to you about before we end this episode is you getting Talk Show the Game Show on air because at this point we have friends who have TV shows either in the works or have, that are already on. You were one of the earliest um, people 
that I witnessed see the process of a show from afar. Because I remember when Talk Show the Game Show was in its live incarnation, I remember going to one of the pilot presentations at Meltdown, and then you very graciously asked a bunch of stand-ups who needed money, you know, hey, we need um, Mm stand-ins, you know? So I remember coming for a few, I think, several different studios to do stand-in work. And the first studio was smaller in Universal City. The next one was even bigger. And then suddenly it was on TV. And then there was another season. It was like you saw over the years how so much work and uh, went into this idea that was a nugget in your head to then being a full-fledged television show. Can you talk about that? Well, I mean, the thing is, is we did it for three years before we got that far. And it was really hard because I like... my managers wouldn't come and watch it. Like my managers wouldn't come and watch this thing. And I was like, and I fired them because that's not good. Um, And you know, it's, it's rough because you're, you have a crystallized idea in your head. um, And you know, it, it took me a while to figure it out as a show. And that's one of the benefits of doing it for three years before anyone came and looked at it was, we started to understand the show and I I just so fell in love with the show. After we did the show for the first time and it worked, I could not go to sleep all night long. That was, because that's I, amazing. I was so excited about it. And then the next night I had writing work, I think, that I had to finish. And then I had to go to work at Punked. And I was so <laughs> fucking, like my brain was not working. And then the guy who was Ashton Kutcher's producing partner, he just like was telling us stories and the night just, it like just, I I had been up for like 50 hours Mm. and he just wouldn't shut up. And I was so, I wanted to get out of there so badly. The thing is, is that like persistence, it took a lot of persistence to get people to pay attention to it. And then once they paid attention to it, it really took persistence a lot. You know, to me, I was just like, it was such a clean, good show that ran like on its own. and was always funny and people were showing up to it and always having a good time. But like most of the networks that watched it weren't into it. And I really so appreciate that true TV took a chance on it. Um, and it is scary and hard and sort of brings out the worst in you when you're getting a show of your own and you're like, Oh God, I, I really hope that this, that this happens. Um, it was so lovely and so much fun. I cannot be mad that it got canceled because I got to do it. Absolutely. It's like a, it's like a jewel in your crown. Yes. It it was really, you know, it was really lovely. Uh, and it was nice when I was doing it to like go back to a writer's room. Like I remember after the first season, I went back to the writer's room in the Mindy project and it was just like, Oh yeah. like when we're done, I don't, I get to go home and not worry about this. And like, yeah, it's like, it's somebody else's problem. Um, also it, it, what I really loved about it going to television is it did keep that, um, thing about it from the live show in the television show where it felt like we were all, gay men and straight women lounging in an apartment, drinking and literally just having so much fun, being ridiculous, talking about pop culture, playing a game. It felt like adult friends having fun in a living room. That's really Uh, what it felt like. Like it was full of chaos and aggression. And I think one of the things that was loveliest about that show um, that would be, uh, is hard to capture is like 
anyone being who they were was doing that show well. You know, like it really was the first times we had people come and not understand what was going on, but still do great. Like in the live show, Michelle Buteau came and was like, you know, we're friends, but she did not know what she had signed up for. And she outscored everyone. And it was like, yes, this is what this show is. Um, and I probably should have maintained more of a degree of like, eh, don't take anything too seriously. Just have a good time. I think I probably stressed out too much with the show, but I think it's really hard for us. One of the things that's great about standups is that we doubt ourselves a lot and spend a lot of time. It's like this great, (laughs) it's this great process of like, you go and do a thing and then you, you stop and then you're like second guessing everything that you did and just like if I pause a little there or maybe this will work better. Um, but over time we are able to get to a point where we really like trust ourselves on stage and have that confidence that comes with like trusting yourself. And I think coming to a point with um, the show that I trusted it you know, I trusted it under a variety of circumstances. Like, we didn't just do the show here. For a year I was in New York, I did it. We would go to festivals and I would, like, bring the stuff in a box. Like, we had done it under adverse enough circumstances that I knew how it would hold up there. And when I think about it, um, you know, like, with scripts, like, really, like, this one thing that I'm working on now um, pitching it so much and rewriting the pitch and like doing that so much that I really feel a great deal of intimacy with the story makes me trust a little bit better that I will be able to write that and not fuck it up. Mm. Um, just because you know it. And like, I think that it is a very stand up skill to be able to always doubt to mix doubt and trust in that way of like, I know how to poke at it. I know how to prod at it or change it, but I also can trust what works. Like it's that it's that mixture of reliable material and right. it, and, and, trying something new. and trying something new. Yeah. Um. So like I I really think and it was a lot of luck. It was luck and you know, uh, Wanda Sykes and Paige Hurwitz helping out with it and you know, all of that you know, being great and also being a thing that I could invite people to come and do where it wasn't just, you know, inviting comics to come do it where I knew they would have a good time. Some people did not. Al Madrigal did not enjoy doing that show. (laughs) Bonnie McFarlane did not enjoy doing that show. Um, But then there were so many people (laughs) who came and did it and were like, that was just such a fun ride. Um, like Julian McCullough was immediately done and in the most stand-up of senses was like, I want to go again. (laughs) Didn't, um, didn't you kick a comic off the stage at one of the live shows though? Oh yes. Well, I mean, that was always part of the game. He wasn't doing it. He just kicked him off. Is that like, um, you could be thrown off of the game for being boring and people were definitely, thrown out of the game for being boring. I think one time Shelby Farrow was thrown off for not knowing what a person should know. <laughs> um, but like everyone was so game and so cool about it and was like, y- you know, the thing is it was a different style of roastiness and yeah. it was like a style of roastiness where the people in charge were gay guys and women largely. Yeah. Um, totally. And that like, 
change the the vibe of it and i think that that was so much of what made it fun and also you know um there were many straight guys who were good at it. <laughs> no, it was great. We did it in Palm Springs, and a lot of yes. us were nervous because we did not Half of my uh, jokes bombed as a judge, but, you know, you have to bomb to kill later on. Um, <laughs> you but it was really solid fun. work, and I'm pretty sure I went to you first always. But we so, were happy to – but yes. we, all of us comics, we were, like, nervous, but it actually worked out really well. It was very fun. Well, and I, I also think we, we – like, we can do – the stuff we spend so much time doing what we decide to do that it can be fun to let somebody else be the dom of our comedy set. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, yeah, we def- were very sub that in night. defense of you, Katie. <laughs> um, was that audience a similar audience to when we did it, which was an older, all white, weirdly Scandinavian crowd? <laughs> yes. Which are my oh. people, I mean. But. I mean, I thought we had a great show no, in did, Palm had, Springs. No, we, yeah. yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. It was an older crowd, but they were, yes. it was fine. When, which time totally are you fine. talking about? When you, me, you, and Casey. And I, I mean, I had to host and do 20 minutes, and I did like... Oh, it, yes. It was a little bit pulling teeth. I mean, it was fine, but I... No, that, you're, that, was, that was just doing stand-up in Palm Springs. Yes. But that was just a weird crowd that didn't know that it was going on. Yes. Um, I mean, you even had to tell me afterwards, you were like... Jonathan, stop talking about it. it went fine. <laughs> and you handed me a cocktail. Well, it was also one of those situations of like going from not stand up to stand up for a three person show in like a space that is not a comedy club is weird hosting work. Yeah. yeah and sure. not a gay crowd at all. The yeah. only gay people there, because I took a poll. Yes. <laughs> were the barbacks and the bartenders and yes. they loved us. Yeah. They were like, Oh my God, we loved you guys. I'm like, I wish it had been all men like them. Just, yes. you know, so. Well, but yeah. I still, well, it was still fun though. Yeah. I don't know. Um, we are coming towards the end. Yes. Anything else you want to talk about? Oh, guy, is there anything you anything. would like to plug any shows or anything? Oh, my book, my life is a goddess is, uh, available wherever books are sold now in paperback. Um, and follow me on, I mean, Twitter is a hellscape and I almost never post anything on Instagram. So I don't know. <laughs> you do have you dressed as Lena Dunham still up on Instagram, which oh, I treasure. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you. It means a lot to me. Um, and I'm doing David Spade's show in February. Oh, great. Oh, great. So, on panel or stand up? On panel. That's great. Yes. But they're doing stand up now, which is cool. Um, yeah. That's the best show on TV right now for stand-up. They let Rachel Mack do her stand-up how she does her stand-up. Yeah. They yeah. didn't censor her at all and her set was like great because yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Well, guy, thank you honestly thank so you. much. You're so successful oh. and we're such... <laughs> That's very sweet. Thank you guys for having People. me. We're just little pitiful peasant <laughs> sluts just at your little... at your feet. I am big yeah. fans of both of you. <laughs> Thanks, thank you, guy. guy. Take care. Thank you. Living glam, living rough, living with Jonathan and Katie.